0: La 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 la. La, la 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 la. Hi and uh, welcome to First Graft. It's me, Heidi James. It's been a while. I have been finishing up the complete first draft of the Sound Mirror. Um yeah, so I've put it away for a bit, to see how we go, see if um how I feel about it changes and uh, I have some first readers having a look including my editor Heather so I'm sure I'll be back to it pretty soon. How are you all? I have one heck of a treat for you all. I got to speak to none other than Catherine Angel. She's one of my absolute favourite authors. She's fantastic and it was really lovely to meet with her and chat with her about her beautiful work. So that interview will follow in a moment a little bit more about her. She is the author of Daddy Issues, which is out this year on Peninsula Press, and Unmastered, A Book on Desire, Most Difficult to Tell, which was published in 2012 by Penguin. Her next book is called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, and will be published by Verso. Catherine also teaches creative and critical writing at Birkbeck College, University of London and has a PhD in the history and philosophy of sexuality and psychiatry from the University of Cambridge. She is incredibly bright and fascinating and talented and I hope you enjoy our conversation about her work and her process and writing and finding ourselves and what we think through the process of writing and reading. Almost reading ourselves into being. I have to say too, um I was pretty excited and nervous, so you can probably tell by the tone of my voice during the interview. Anyway, Catherine starts off by reading from her latest book, Daddy Issues.
1: people whom I cannot look in the eye in conversation. Avoiding eye contact is often seen as a sign of guilt or shame, but it can also be an attempt to resist being used. The people whose eyes I cannot meet are those in whose gaze I can detect the overwhelming clamour of requested affirmation. Those in whose gaze lies a demand for recognition and a request for compliance. I hate to be made into the mother whose gaze is demanded the gaze of mirroring and recognition. When I only exist as a mirror for someone else, I cannot go on looking. In 2018, Anthea Hamilton's Squash took up residence at Tate Britain, in the imposing Devine galleries now dotted with various podiums and a swimming pool-like stage. Everything was porcelain-like, gleaming and clean, clinical in its brightness. The day I went, the Squash performed or embodied by a rotor of actors, was sitting on a square armchair-like structure. I approached from behind, could see the round bulb of its head and its relaxed, confident pose. Moving around it, I saw the squash more clearly, a human figure, dressed that day in floaty clothes, a full dress with a velvet-looking panel at the chest and somewhat puffed sleeves. It was wearing bright yellow and green gloves, thick and sturdy like those used for gardening. A beautiful, bulbous, obscene, squash-like structure covered its entire head, the colours salmon pink and emerald green marbled like Florentine endpapers. Its sort of nose was long, animal, vegetable, and genital all at once. It sat imperious, though not unfriendly, looking out at it, a bemused audience. People strolled by and stopped in curiosity, Some rushed past, disconcerted, one woman visibly shuddered, and catching my eye, pulled a face. The squash was uncanny, for sure. Others failed to notice it at all. For its part, it sat watching us, calmly, placidly, a human-animal vegetable, deliciously genderless, a formidable projective screen. I watched it for ages, hypnotised by its ambiguous, connotative form, its lack of face as such, its absence of discernible needs or investments in anyone else's gaze. At one point I sensed its awareness of my prolonged staring, but seeing no eyes, no face, I felt able to stay there and keep looking. When I eventually moved round to the back of it to leave, its great lovely head turned heavily with my movement, slowly following me. It was such a relief to look at the squash, to hold and be held by a gaze I could not really see, to experience an exchange of gazes free of anxiety, desire, investment, demand. How wonderful it would be to not have to see people's faces with all their needs and longings and projections, and to have one's own face unseen, one's own face with all its needs and longings and projections.
0: Thank you, Catherine. I... I love this book. I love that piece. I think this feels to me almost like the perfect relationship with a book when you're mm. reading mm. that you're you're, see, you're you're seeing and unseeing this kind of unseeing, mm. but being seen and held and understood. Do you mm. know what I mean? For mm-hmm. me, that felt like a beautiful description of of reading and the book, mm. a book.
1: Yeah, I mean. That's really interesting because, I mean, at one level, obviously, the book is about fathers and daughters yeah. and feminism, but it's also really about what it is to write mm. and how language can be a way to try to resolve and address some of those kind of issues of of the gaze and mm-hmm. of, you know, whether we can sort of really exist as ourselves and whether we can be seen yeah. and whether we can be heard that you know all those issues are so much to the fore in relation to patriarchy mm-hmm. and me too and sexual harassment yeah but i'm glad that you sort of feel that about the book because for me like the 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 arc of the book really moves towards a kind of statement about why writing is so sort of, so at least important to me i mean i can't speak for anyone
0: else no i that that that's certainly how i read the book and mm. and it being about um Storytelling, narrative, selfness—you mm. know—Didion says, wasn't it? I, I write in order to know, or to—we mm-hmm. are the stories we tell ourselves, et cetera. Yeah, but we it's tell more than that. To live, that's that, it, yeah? yeah. But it's even—but even as I say that, I think that's sort of reducing. It becomes reductive because it's about so much more. So that then, as you said, that the book is about—it's well, about relationships, isn't it? Embodiment and. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost the squash would be the perfect mother mm-hmm. or yeah. parent, just not yeah. imposing upon, but seeing, holding. Yeah, um, yeah well, the perfect. Yeah, I mean the perfect everything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, after I went to the squash, I just for for days afterwards I felt really haunted by it, and I and I found myself thinking as well, like how much easier teaching would be, or well, any form of human interaction mm-hmm. if you didn't have to be reckoning with the gaze you yep. know, between you and, and registering, you know, all the anxieties and needs of your students mm-hmm. and also feeling that you're having to kind of protect your own anxieties and to simulate them and, you know, perform. And, and you know, I think performance is a really important and worthwhile aspect of life, but it's very taxing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and could be. That, that I think, particularly with teaching, that can be far scarier... And I think the students are aware of for us mm-hmm. when we're lecturing that you are they are feeding from you and that can be a lovely dynamic. And when there's great energy, but if they're just sat there staring at you or not looking at you, or mm. and you're bringing all your own anxieties into that space, mm. it's sort of it's almost like it should be this almost clinical benign space, but of course it isn't. It's, it's full of different relations mm. going on all the time.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, I think you just used the phrase like being seen and unseen or something yeah and I feel like that's that's so much at the heart of so many kind of problems Mm. in life that you know you know as women we're both over visible and Mm -hmm. unseen yeah or you know we're seen in ways that make us vulnerable or denigrated Mm -hmm. and then we're also not seen in ways that affect our well-being and safety and flourishing Uh and obviously that's so much part of the kind of challenge of parenting is knowing how to kind of see the infant and the child in the right way, in a way that is productive and generative at the same time as being holding and kind of constraining to some yeah. extent, because you have to constrain of course. infants and babies. And that balance between kind of enabling and mm. refusing, I think, is so crucial yeah, difficult to get right in all human relationships
0: definitely all our egos and our issues i mean you talk about that beautifully when you're talking about um harrison's the kiss
1: mm-hmm.
0: but her, well, her father looks too much so her mother doesn't see see her at all yeah and he looks too much and it becomes exhausting
1: yeah and that she she's chasing that, that that's mm. what's so kind of painful about that amazing book is that that's what she wants. She wants the gaze that kind of brings her into being as a yeah. as a child. But it comes in her late teens, and it comes in
0: yeah. this
1: kind of misconceived form of incest. And yeah. but that's what I found so amazing about that memoir that she was able to look so forensically, like with such a kind of clinical gaze yeah. at her own life, and to I mean, it had the most crazy responses. Some of the reviews <gasps> West, of it were yeah, so I so misogynistic and awful um but I thought it was actually a real achievement of just laying bare the kind of psychological dynamics that a kind of abusive relationship Mm
0: -hmm. with all its complexities as well where it's not always this binary dichotomous there's the abuser there's the abusee that there are Moments of consent and choice that don't negate the abuse mm. or the power. Probably, you know, this
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. She she does that so masterfully that she mm. she manages to to convey that there was something she really wanted from her father, and that they both, for both of them, that mutual desire for for being seen. Mm took on this form that was incredibly harmful, but she doesn't deny that she, at some level, you know, allowed it to happen. Yeah,
0: that she's participating. Yeah. It's not wholly passive that there is a... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's something she wanted and something she got from it. Mm. But it was also, at the same time, horrendous for her and incredibly painful.
0: Yeah. You touch on it um, in Unmastered when Mm. you talk about you're with a friend and you're watching at a lecture and it's you know you, you sort of talk about um I think you're talking about pornography and sexuality and and it's almost and i've had this happen where i'm a bad feminist because i've talked about violence and sexuality in women and girls mm-hmm. and, and that drives me absolutely fucking mad frankly that, mm. and it feels like there is this this still misogynistic bent that is it must be packaged light, yeah with any please don't discuss any troubling desires or libidinal urges that mm-hmm. aren't safe thank you
1: yeah yeah and i think it's i mean it's so difficult because you know of course as women and as feminists we don't want to be giving ammunition to people to indulge their misogynistic ideas mm-hmm. about women but I also think you can't be responsible for other people's idiocy and that it's a a feminism that doesn't dare to look at those really complicated spaces is not a feminism that is worthy of its name. Because ultimately, you know, requiring women to have a really simple subjectivity in order to keep us safe from male Mm -hmm. violence isn't going to do us any
0: favors. No, it's just reifying the old structures, really. Exactly,
1: and if and if you are required to have very, you know, straightforward, uh, palatable desires, or whatever it might be, if if you know, if contorting the weird psychological space of fantasy and desire into an unrealistic shape in order to be safe is the only way we can be safe, that's not going to work anyway, because no. you know, reality always comes out. And the reality of psychological life is complicated and dark. Mm. Therefore, you know, when men then get a whiff of that, they use that to punish us yes. if they want to. Yeah. So, ultimately, it doesn't. It doesn't help to to shy away from those really difficult areas and difficult conversations. I think. I mean, it's difficult mm. and it's painful, but I I just think it's not. It's, it's not even strategic to not <laughs> try exactly. and deny it. <laughs> yeah, because it'll
0: come back and bite us on the arse. Well, also, it's just sort of again, it's just a simple oversimplification. It's denying any, as you say, any subjectivity that there is. Yeah, any complex life. And sometimes it is unpalatable entirely yeah. unpalatable But there, you know.
1: Yeah, and there it, we are. You know, one of the things that we, it would be good if we could achieve would be a recognition that you know women are complicated yeah please and
0: (laughs) that would be nice hello we're human yeah (laughs) Yeah. wouldn't it just you know with all of its strangenesses um i I, I, I have to say i'm a bit of a fangirl about this book and um and i sort of thought i should confess i have daddy issues Mm
1: -hmm.
0: well i
1: think we all do
0: yeah well in
1: fact you know whether we have dads or not or Mm. whether we are daughters or not i mean
0: yeah socially we clearly have daddy issues yeah exactly <laughs> which is what the book is that's what i love about it so it's personal but it is uh, it's such a trite phrase it's political as well but it is about the larger issues mm. but it does come it's sort of you you manage to move a lens in and out so mm. beautifully so elegantly um and and this is also true of our master and other friends of mine who read that we had really extraordinary responses to the book so what, what's that like as a writer because what you're writing is um daring's I don't want to say daring Um but but you are in a nuanced, beautiful way, you are digging deep and deep and deep and asking questions and sometimes providing an answer that then asks another question, which I think is very exciting. Um and I know I'm not the only person who's responded like that to your work. So that must be what's that like for you as a writer to have to know that you're sort of pulling on these responses with people where they they take your book, their books become very personal. Mm. I mean it's I
1: suppose it's strange and kind of great mean, mm. you know when I'm writing I don't I don't tend to think that much about the the reader and I mean I mean in fact as I argue in Daddy Issues I have to kind of destroy the idea of the reader in order to be able to write but yeah. also in order to be able to live yeah <laughs> um, but but yeah you know when the book lands in in people's minds and their lives um yeah i have been aware that that both of these books i mean it's very early days with daddy issues but but people are kind of responding very intensely to it very kind of viscerally yeah and and yeah this is funny there have been a lot of people saying that they you know it's quite a disturbing book it's sort of it goes to some really quite dark places and that that's kind of uncomfortable but that they feel really um Seen by it, or mm. kind of gratified by that, yeah. And um, I mean, it's really great for people, you know. It's really great to just have people read your books and, <laughs> yeah. and think about them and respond to them. But I mean, it's also, I am kind of aware, like that, I am drawn to sort of thinking about quite painful, dark things, and um, and to sort of, you know, like in, in the writing of deadly Issues, I did have these moments where so I was like how oh, am I writing? Like, mm. It's so, you know, to write a book about fathers and daughters and to be like, let's have loads of material about incest. <laughs> you know, it's it's very much not a kind of romance of like, oh, fathers. Fathers yeah. who are lovely because their daughters are great. I mean, I'm sort of taking the position that, in fact, the forms of love that fathers can express towards daughters or about daughters mm. really needs to be scrutinized yeah. because the sort of paternal role is, I think, the kind of wellspring of patriarchy and sexual mm. violence yeah and, and it, it's really uncomfortable to think about that and for some reason i'm drawn to, to kind of going to the really uncomfortable place um
0: you're right this is a real, i mean even in those sort of really sick little tropes that we just trot out and don't think about like oh uh when someone's just had a baby baby girl and the phone oh, you'll be protective of her you'll have a shotgun waiting for a first boyfriend yeah. exit like
1: all those what? jokes. What? Like, yeah. what are we saying in that? Really moment? you
0: possess her, but like what why yeah. why would you be sexually jealous of your daughter? What is that implying? I mean Yeah. I mean, they aren't um we don't challenge that. It's this odd. Yeah. I mean that's the thing I find so
1: disturbing. That trope it's everywhere and it's it's such a stable of staple of so many comedies, especially. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the fact that it's that there's real comedic potential to it is also a kind of recognition of how crazy and dark it is. so we have
0: to try and find humor in some way almost to mitigate
1: yeah that really and, insidious but it's, a, but it's kind of a recognition that it's fucked up yeah like, to sort of laugh about it but at the same time it's completely normalized and I mean I you know I just I feel like I've seen so many articles in the press by you know new dads like journalists sort of trotting out all those things about, you know, how they're they're now feminists. Uh, Yeah,
0: now. Now they are. And I
1: find that really galling and Mm. kind of offensive, to be honest, because I don't think that men should have to um, have their sort of patriarchal, protective feelings awoken by the birth of a daughter in order to take women's subjectivity seriously. And I think that's kind of the point, is that in that protective, in thinking about, Men being feminists in terms of
0: protectiveness—that
1: mm. to me isn't really feminism because it's not about recognizing a woman's or a girl's separate autonomy. Mm. It's about wanting to own and control her sexuality. Exactly. So it's as far from feminism as it could be. Yeah. Um, because I really, I really think in that trope of jealousy and like, yeah, wanting to, you know be violent to your daughter's boyfriend what you're assuming there is that you own her body mm-hmm. but also you're assuming that it's acceptable to completely put aside the question of her own sexual desires yeah what if that daughter wants to have sex with that boyfriend yeah what if she wants to experiment and explore mm-hmm. her sexuality so under the guise of protectiveness it's just the same old control and repression absolutely so the idea that this can be kind of repackaged as you know being reborn as a feminist is just so troubling to me but it's also you know that thought is quite dark like when I wrote those bits of the book and when I hear myself talking about it I think you know I'm sure that for fathers it can be quite a difficult thing to kind of think about um but also because I'm suggesting that the that the father identifies with a predatory masculinity in order to be able to feel the
0: affection yeah. towards the daughter, which is really troubling, right? And this is what you call up in the very beginning, sort of the genesis, if you like, at the very beginning of the book, you sort of, you know, we're looking at me too, we're thinking about these men, and these men are fathers, they are partners, brothers. And you're right, so when a father says, I remember a father, one of one of my father's, my dad, not my father, my dad, saying something like, I know how they think. Mm. So, and you think, no, what you're telling me is you think like that. Yeah. So I will be used and, you know, yeah. you have to protect it, you know. And you're right, so it's about this, there are all these men that we have these cosy, lovely relationships with who are having other relationships with other women, mm. usually strangers or, or not within their Filial circle that they are therefore protective of. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, and that's what, I mean, that's what really kind of one of the many things that bugged me about and continues to bug me about the whole Me Too thing, which of course is, you know, such an important hmm. development and, you know, it's to the good that these conversations are happening, but I am very skeptical about the way they're unfolding. And yeah, one of the things I was really concerned about was just how invisible. Figure of the father was, which you know is so odd because that reproduces a a distinction between the private realm and the public realm Mm. that feminism has always been trying to dismantle. Exactly. And yet, in this moment when we're trying to reckon with patriarchy in all its forms, Mm. we're weirdly silent about the fact that, yeah, these abusers are also fathers, Mm. but also that the family, you know, the heterosexual family, is the place where gender roles and the kind of primacy of the male ego are really learned Mm. and and that's why I was really keen to look at you know texts that I think really are engaging in that question they're not explicitly feminist texts necessarily but they're Mm. you know things like novels like Ghost War by Sarah Moss and Mm -hmm. Sophie McIntosh's The Water Cure that I write about in the book yeah because they seem to me to really get something about that relationship between Protection and violence.
0: Yeah, Sophie McIntosh is, yeah, the water cure is so unsettling and yeah. precisely. I mean, he's sequestered them and yeah. to protect them, and yeah, he is the perpetrator. Yeah, and he's absent. Yeah, and that's
1: interesting too, mm-hmm. you know, especially in relation to me too, like thinking about, you know, the fantasy of kind of getting rid of the patriarch and mm-hmm. evicting these bad men from various spaces like workplaces but what what does that mean if you've grown up in under the the king's rule you know yeah. if the king is absent it doesn't mean his power is gone
0: no i mean i grew up without i didn't know my father mm-hmm. until i was 14 uh, but he was very present in his absence mm. i knew i didn't have one mm. and this was so i was born in the 70s so this was before it was more common mm-hmm. to have a single mom mm-hmm. i was the only kid and you know i thought oh well it's because i'm not good enough it's because i'm dirty and mm-hmm. not wanted and but very aware of the absence and then of course there are other figures that come in because she's a young woman who had relationships mm-hmm. and they could be problematic you know it's all mm-hmm. so there's so many yeah way or permutations of being unfathered over fathered
1: yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah, there are so many different permutations of families.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and you know, I think this book is, obviously it's suffused with my own sort of feelings and experience. And, you know, I come from a family with, you know, a mother and a father and one sister. Um, sort of classic hetero family. But I do also think that, you know, regardless of one's family situation,
0: mm-hmm. we live under the yeah, the the
1: the gaze and the kind of structure of the patriarchal family, yeah. like it's not escapable yet, sadly.
0: <laughs> no, is it really? It isn't? I mean, I'm hooray
1: to have any efforts to escape and destroy it, but um, it's a big task.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're not. Yeah, I don't know that we're gonna do it right now. No, we can try. we yeah. have a good old go. I bet. I love it. You were just talking about um, the like the novels that you've been looking at because there's a we talk about talked earlier about how readers engage. Because I think as a writer, you're very generous. There's a generosity in your writing. So towards the reader, but also towards the texts that you are engaging with. And there's a, a scholarly, under, not undertone, there's a carefulness. That you're careful, you're thoughtful, but it's not scholarly in that it's not overtly reverent or trying to unpick and there's a real generosity in that. And I love that. So you talk talk about in the book um This American Life and Winnicott and Alice Miller and mm-hmm. you know, you're touching on philosophy and psychology and and modern culture as well and poetry. It's love I love that. So mm. do you set out to do that? Or is that just how you that's how you're thinking, that's what you're thinking about, and they're your resources? I don't think I set out
1: to do it. It's just
0: how I think. Um
1: yeah, I mean when with the writing of daddy issues it was it was quite odd in a way because I, I had this idea that I you know, there was this thing that I wanted to look into and dig into a bit. And it was partly triggered by the water cure actually. When I was reading that mm. I really did think this figure of King the Father was so interesting and rich and I and I had a feeling I would need to write about it. Um I really didn't know what I was going to say in the book at all and mm-hmm. I think that's that's really the case with my writing that I, I sort of discover what I have to say in the writing and um, so I wrote a little proposal for Peninsula Press and it was quite brief <laughs> and then I was finishing another book and I sort of put it aside for a bit and then when it came to writing it I did have this moment thinking like I just don't know what I have to say actually I don't know if I have much to say and mm. I was slightly worried that You know, I'd been, like, a two-page person. That was it. I'd run out. um, But then I just... I just started um, writing little sections about things that interested me and Mm. that, you know, had been in the background of my thinking in the last couple of years, I suppose. And and I do often find that um, novels trigger a lot of thoughts and writing for me Mm. and films and TV. Mm. And sometimes I after watching something I just feel like okay there is a thing I now want to say and I can sort of bash it out quite fast uh-huh. um so it's a little bit piecemeal in that I'll be just kind of gathering little bits and pieces based on what I'm reading mm. and what I'm thinking about and watching and so you know sometimes I like I would read something because I knew it was about fathers and daughters yeah or Sometimes it's, like, completely accidental, though. Mm. I mean, like the squash, for instance, you know, that has this place in the book, but, mm. you know, I had no idea it would end up being so crucial to the book. Mm. So it's really it's really piecemeal and quite blind, my way of writing. <laughs> Sometimes I wish you know, I could be more methodical and yeah. have more of a sense of where I'm going, And I, and I really don't. And then it sort of gathers together and
0: hopefully creates a kind of coherent object it does it coalesces beautifully i think the way you've got it's learning to trust that process isn't it yeah. you find your way is finding your way in the dark yeah. and then suddenly the light turns on and oh yeah okay i'd figured out yeah where the furniture was
1: yeah
0: yeah to be cheesy about it but yeah i mean, I, I think what's lovely it's really interesting hearing you talk about your process because for me there's something extraordinary the ideas they froth they surge they flow your subjects really they there's something really fluid and lovely like, you know they'll s- spill over and but your writing is so elegant and taught mm. and complex and nuanced without being in any way pretentious mm. is that how? just how you write and if it is I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> or is there, a, is there a good bit of stripping back and editing a, and, and sort of pulling away? And, yeah,
1: there's definitely oh good, a lot that's of editing. Good. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I mean, there are, some, there are some bits in this that just came out, you know, as they as they came out, mm. and they're sort of pretty much there. Um, but we did a lot of editing with um, with the Peninsula Press. Yeah, with Trio, mm. yeah. And their editing was brilliant, like really insightful and really useful. And and especially with the bits, so, you know, when I talk about Winnicott and Freud and mm-hmm. um, I can't remember who else, like the more kind of theoretical material, there was definitely more work of kind of translation to do.
0: Yeah, because it's really easy, I think, when you're, when you're in, when you're used to working in academia, you can... I know I sometimes do not start talking the teleological and you think that yeah. I'm not gaining any ground. This is not working.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think,
0: yeah, just tonally,
1: sometimes mm. it can be a, a bit academic or a bit stiff or, yeah, or assuming too much. Yeah. And so there was, I mean, with this also, I was reading at Winnicott like really intensely and also <laughs> reading for about the millionth time Adam Phillips' amazing book on Winnicott. yeah. Which, I mean, is completely defaced in my copy. It's such an amazing book, and uh, and so then I, you know, then I was writing like pages of notes about Winnicott, and in the process of trying to put that into the book, first of all, there was just way too much. Suddenly, I had like, you know, twenty pages of Winnicott. It <laughs> yeah, like a so
0: thesis on you know, Winnicott. This, they are supposed to be short books, these <laughs> like very short
1: books. So yeah, so we had to do a lot of cutting of that mm-hmm. and paring down, but. I was really glad to do that work because I sort of knew that, you know, that sometimes something is like the, the raft that gets you across the river. Yeah. And then you're on the other side of the river and you're like, actually, I only need two pages on this or, mm-hmm. but it took me 20 pages to get.
0: To there. know what you wanted to say yeah. about it. Yeah. So yeah. it's all,
1: you know, it's all useful work. It's not, it's not wasted, but, but thank God for editors because it's so hard to see that for yourself. Yeah. You know, to absolutely. work out what the most important idea is and if it connects up and, mm. and, Peninsula boys, as I like to call them, they <laughs> seem so young, um, young and brilliant. Um, they they were just great at knowing kind of what what fitted in the book and what didn't. Mm. And and they another thing they were really good at was kind of getting me to make sure that I was kind of anchoring things along the way and mm-hmm. and remembering like the sort of place I'd started from and mm-hmm. you know because in in a form like that. I mean, I can't remember how long it is now. Is it like 18,000 words or something?
0: Yeah, it's 112 pages, small pages. Yeah. They are beautiful objects. I know that, you know, we're talking about the writing itself, but there is something so gratifying about this yeah. beautiful book. I really love short things. I just, I love short books mm. and long essays,
1: and I like small objects. And it's I, it's funny because I feel like, I seem incapable of writing really long things. Like, I've tried. Like, I tried Mm -hmm. to write a proper academic monograph on female sexual dysfunction, and I've probably got, like, 200,000 fucking words on my laptop. But I could not make it Mm. into the shape I wanted, and I couldn't make it work as a sort of... I mean, I could have, I think. Yeah, I'm sure you could. You know, the desire wasn't there to make that kind of object. And and a while ago i had a draft of a book that was was about 80,000 words or something and i just couldn't i just couldn't make it work and i and i think that i may need to always write books that are maximum like i think maybe 40,000 is my max mm. the book i'm doing that's going to be coming out next year or or shortly after and that's going to be published by verso i think that's going to be about 35 Thousand maybe forty
0: max, but don't you think that it's perfect because you can engage with it and not lose it. You can just be with the idea. You can immerse yourself. Mm. I love novellas and short novels
1: mm.
0: for that very reason. That I'm not, I'm not having to step outside the world I've conjured, I've come into. Yeah. And with, your, with the essays, um, you you are able to be with it from beginning to end, mm. or maybe in two sittings. But there's something lovely about that, as opposed to feeling lost and yeah
1: I think that's the difficulty isn't it that in in writing it is possible to get really lost and then it's so easy to transmit that to the reader mm. and you know I've had experience of that in my writing and I I know when it works it's when you know again it's I mean it's like being held yeah you know, exactly it's like you're in a safe container yeah and for me the container in which I can kind of roam freely actually it's quite small
0: Mm, yeah yeah (laughs) but you're not i think most of us are like that you know you put people in a big room they make it small by pulling the furniture into the but i think it's live our lives are changing we don't have long long periods to. and did the working classes ever have that anyway but even now there's Mm. as academic supposedly more leisured classes yeah i we don't have the space really have to go to bureaucratic meetings and so we don't have i don't know the luxury to get lost in a long long yeah without being our only
1: yeah it's funny because i mean you know i i read long books just looking at my shelves like lots of long big books that i love Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean obviously there's always a question of time but it's also i don't know i i I struggle a bit with this sometimes because I, I do know that I have, um, that I, I really like really taught writing. Like I, I'm i very aware of kind of bagginess in writing and I, I do a lot of work to try to kind of make the prose mm. taught and yeah. contained and not, you know, nothing nothing that's not needed. I, I, I try and excise all of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also aware that, you know, that that is a particular kind of aesthetic preference and it's one that is laden with, some kind of like you know that that sort of it's like a, a valorization of the of the economic and the sort of the muscular and which I think is quite problematic in writing because it's also often used in really gendered ways to kind of yes. think about like the sort of baggy novel the sprawling incontinent of yeah. a female writer even though actually there's a lot of very sprawling incontinent novels <laughs> by men yeah. um, I won't name any names but um you know i'm just interested i suppose in that language and how
0: yeah i i i i'm sort of in two camps with it because there's i tend to write in a very spare way mm-hmm. but partly because i just don't i'm aware of time and i don't know i just i also like an not poetic necessarily but I like it when you are saying so much with so little yeah I think there's something very beautiful about that and interesting about that Mm. and it leaves space for the reader to conjure with you yeah and sometimes when something's overwritten I think that you're writing the reader out of it Mm. but on the other hand I do love language that you know there's that whole valorization the valorization of this sort of yeah this Hemingway muscularity Mm. in writing and and I if you distrust realism and you distrust what language can do therefore you're going to pare it back mm-hmm. well i think that's mm-hmm. the wrong way if you distrust language and realism and what then it actually push it to its limits mm. it ought to be almost more baroque and rococo and mm. you know make it strain strain mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. but i just don't do that mm. but i like the idea yeah. of that yeah and there's a lot of writing that i
1: like that is that is like really different from mm. mine in those mm. sorts of ways that you know is much more sprawling and and baroque and gothic and yeah I mean I you know I have quite mixed tastes I suppose when it comes to reading but but when I'm thinking about how to write myself and how to improve my writing I always
0: yeah
1: it's always do. a kind of work of shaving off and mm. a, and of trying to make the object as tight as yeah. possible,
0: like a drum I always yeah think, you know, that kind of
1: exactly yeah. like it could burst yeah like actually it's sort of it's it's powerful but also fragile in the way that. The yeah, things exactly. Are. You
0: could just tap te- like. Puncture it. Yeah, Explode. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're making gestures at each other. Yeah, like kick it and flick it. Um, yeah, I just tried to. I, the novel I'm writing is a. It's gonna be a historic epic. Whoa. It's 200 words. Who am I kidding? I can't do it. Like, it's like these lives and it's gonna be. And it's, wow. you know, I can't. It's just not who I am. I can't write about the mop and the bucket and the this and, and the neighbours mm. and the It's just not who I am. Mm. I just. It's funny, isn't it? How you
1: how you kind of learn about your own aesthetic mm. in a way through mm. writing. And mm. but what's weird about this one is that I finished it. I wrote it quite fast. Yeah, partly because I was a bit late <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, after having
1: written this
0: other book. But you were probably thinking about it for a long time, yeah. right? So it's just the act of writing. Yeah, you the writing is brewing and then yeah.
1: and then it came out. But the other book that I was writing is quite different in style in a way and I was I'd had this phase for about a year of being like I am sick of I'm sick of the essay I'm sick of like I'm sick of elegant oblique meditative (laughs) first person writing I mean you know daddy issues is quite different from unmastered but I was sort of yeah I was in I was in a phase where I was like I want to be much more direct and argumentative and Which I think this is, yeah. It is in a way. Yeah. But this other one that I've written is much more like that. And then I wrote this, like, without thinking at all about what I was writing. Mm -hmm. And that, I find quite interesting. interesting. Yeah, Yeah. because, you know the way with some books, you're like, you get really obsessed with what they are and what Mm we are trying to do. Like, it all becomes a bit super kind of conscious. Yeah. And, you know, you're thinking way too much about it. (laughs) And and with this one, I mean, it was very strange because I was also really busy and um, and I really wrote it in this quite reckless way, where I was like, I sort of tricked myself a bit. I was like, oh well, probably no one will read it anyway. You know, sort of very small press. Even though I knew that Peninsula were doing amazing things, and yeah. you know, and I I've, live your I've book. Yeah, read all their books, yeah. and you know, there's been quite a lot of attention paid mm. from them. But I was really like, oh, I'm just writing this little thing. It's not really <laughs> a thing, and uh, and it came so easily. And I was like, well, oh, this—that's the so trick nice. you've got to
0: play on yourself. Yeah. It's just a tiny thing it's a pamphlet really
1: yeah nothing, and none of it matters yeah nobody's gonna read it and I'm just alone creating the <laughs> object I can destroy yeah. to survive the
0: destruction <laughs> and yeah so that the ending is beautiful we're gonna come back so can you tell us much about the book that's coming or you know, you yeah, able to
1: it's um it's called Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again that sounds good I'm up for that <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's actually a line from Foucault's Will to Knowledge that he's using kind of quite sardonically. Mm. Um, And it's about about the kind of possibility of knowledge about sex. So scientific knowledge about sex, but Mm. also self-knowledge about our own sexual desires. Mm. And it's about the kind of... the quest to sort of find out the truth about especially female sexual desire and how that shapes conversations about consent and sexual violence, and Fantastic. how optimistic we feel about sex improving. And it's sort of, I'm, I'm taking the line, you know, lots of people have taken kind of variants of this line. Um, I'm taking the line that it's really almost impossible to know about our own sexual desire. Mm. And if we if we have a kind of model of consent and of sexual pleasure that, um, that relies on self-knowledge and that urges women to know and express their sexual desire, mm-hmm. that's going to come back to haunt us. And it does come back to haunt us in really painful ways. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of making the case that, you know, a reckoning with sexual violence that requires us to tell untruths about the world of desire and fantasy is dangerous and harmful.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a bit Amen. Good. <laughs> Keep it that way. I mean, you know, I'm all for people have, Yeah, you know, read what you want, uplift, whatever. But for me, I just think, okay, I see enough of that Pollyanna. I just, I want to know more about humans. Mm. I want to know more about how we all work, don't work, are attempting to work what is it what is this Mm. reaching towards one another pushing each other away Mm. and if that's so called dark then okay i for me it just feels like that's the work yeah sounds amazing yeah
1: i agree and also i think i mean you know the moment we're in i think is really interesting because on the one hand there is this kind of resurgence of commitment to thinking about consent Mm. and violence and that's amazing and brilliant and long overdue and i mean it's not even that it's overdue it's just that this you know periodically this happens yeah and and then we all optimistically think hooray finally finally we're having the conversation Mm -hmm. and the conversation doesn't change much actually and the reality doesn't change much um and often that conversation i think it indulges a sort of like a kind of willful blindness not not even about sex but about what it is to be a person
0: yes That
1: assumes a kind of transparent subject and assumes a kind Mm -hmm. of ability to know oneself fully and then makes that a requirement on women. Yeah. And that's really dangerous because then if as a woman you fail to know what you want, Mm -hmm. does that mean you're fair game? I think it does in the minds of a lot of men, right? Yes. And a lot of the consent conversation trades on that, I think, in ways that are really, really troubling.
0: Yeah. Especially when this idea, the sort of sense of our bodies and what we can and can't do with them, how we dress them, how we move with them, what we can consent to in terms of clinical procedures or mm. future choices. I mean, it's all so messy and muddy that mm. just to say then the consent and sex is this, and if you know, it, it's, it's mm. impossible, it's far too complicated.
1: Mm. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's a tricky position to take, isn't it? Because I don't think that, that therefore, is a ground to be like, oh, well, whatever, we're no. all too complicated. No, that not just trying that's just means that's the sex work to do. Yeah. But it just, it, yeah, yeah, it means that if you're going to take seriously, you know, ideas of autonomy and respect and pleasure, then you have, you have to reckon with uncertainty and mm. confusion and change and yeah. trauma. Yeah. And if you don't do those
0: things, there's no point. And, and you're right, the absolute mutability. Mm. What was great and working may not be. Yeah, but maybe again, and maybe won't. Yeah,
1: but that's very difficult for people. I think, you know. Yeah, like there is a pressure on people to sort of also like to say what you what you want sexually and to say what you're into. Yeah, what if you don't know
0: what the what if you can't articulate it? It's like I don't know. And what if you never were taught the words or those words were. Yeah, the, sh- the amount of shame that we still have. and as, I would think, you know, as someone who's progressive and open and interesting, I know I've got so much shame from the way I was raised mm. and, yeah, that I'm having to think through and work mm. at sometimes and things exactly. I didn't even know that were there that have come up yeah. as I've gotten older as well with changing body and attitudes mm-hmm. and responsibilities mm-hmm. and thought, blimey, I didn't know I was this mm. prude. <laughs> Where's this? So, yeah. So yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> I just wanted to finish on, so, in the last second to last page, where you say people, some people seem to ask you if writing is therapeutic, and you say the more accurate formulation for me is, is that writing is how I experience my experience, uh, and I just wanted to ask you a bit more about that, about mm. knowing your experience, and how writing is sort of writing into being. Yeah, I feel I feel that
1: really strongly I, I went to see the lee krasner exhibition on saturday at
0: the mm. Vatican, and,
1: and um there was a room that had paintings that she did after um
0: her husband
1: whose name i've forgotten ironically because he's been more famous yes Jackson yeah. Pollock. i'm glad glad i've forgotten <laughs> yeah good <laughs> to redress the historic imbalance um so she this these paintings that she was doing um after his death, and in the kind of text next to the paintings, there was a quote. It's on my phone memory. I won't be find it fast enough. But um, where she said, like, um, when people asked her, "How are you managing to paint so soon after his death?" Mm. While she was still, you know, really in full-on grief, mm. and uh, and her response was something like, "Well, painting is painting is living. I I." i live and i paint i Mm. don't have a choice or anyway she put it much more eloquently than that but i had this moment of feeling like oh god that's really how i feel and then also thinking it sounds so melodramatic it's kind of embarrassing in a way to admit that but i really i really think that um in the so in the book i in daddy issues i talk about that experience of um sort of performing for a parent Mm -hmm. yeah um And, you know, what Winnicott talks about, about being kind of in the bright glare of the parents' needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very common experience, right? Mm -hmm. children are so attuned to the needs of those around them. And that can be a source of kind of great um, insight and sensitivity. And it can also be an obstacle to sort of knowing who you are or knowing Mm. what you want. And I definitely feel in my life, writing is a space of freedom um that I just I just don't experience anywhere else it's I feel like it's the one place I really can think properly, and that's not to say that conversation isn't also that because I also am very dependent on conversation as a way to understand the world and have insight into all sorts of things, including myself. but I feel like without writing i I, it's weird. It's like I don't quite feel that I have boundaries or yeah. a distinct kind of sense of myself until I really process things through writing. Mm. So it becomes a way to to bring myself into being and to then and it's not. So it's partly about you know processing things and reflecting on things and making sense of them. I think you know that's very common for people that writing is a way to do that. But I sort of feel like it's, it's kind of more existential even than that, that I, I don't really feel I exist. Oh, that sounds so mad. No, it doesn't. Until, until I've kind of made an object in which I have become the person who thinks the things I am thinking in the writing. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> oh, God.
0: It does. When you say that, uh, say, I create a parent and other whose face remains impassive, who doesn't demand my false self. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's that moment, the false self. Yeah. So you're just playing. You're allowed to play. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, in Winnicott, play
1: is so important. And I was really struck by that. The way that, you know, like with The Squash, my experience of seeing The Squash, and then also The Father in Tony Edmund, an amazing film by Marin Ade, Mm. um... In both those things, there's something really pivotal about the lack of a face. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how freeing it is, you know, not to be so susceptible to the needs of others or to be aware of their needs and their feelings. Yeah. And writing is like this kind of, it's weird. You know, have you seen, have you watched Stranger Things? You know, I have, yeah you, know that, yeah. you know, especially in the first series when she goes down into the dark, weird, mm-hmm. under... I can't remember what it's called. The but n- other space, but it's yeah. completely black, yeah. and it's just her. And obviously, it's really terrible. It's partly a really terrifying image. It's not supposed mm. to be a great space, but I can't help thinking that <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the space where you can really create. Is when you're sort of freed from the sort of demands of other people, and your it's not even their demands. It's your Anticipation of their demands or yeah. fear of their demands, mm. and while I say that, I also um, feel skeptical about it because at the same time, I don't really buy the idea of autonomy as complete separateness. Like I don't, I don't really believe in like you know we're only ever free when we're completely free from other people because that's impossible. Life is entanglement and mm. relationality and porousness. Mm. But I definitely experience writing as this kind of amazing, like infinite. <laughs> just sound like I'm on drugs, infinite dark space where I can sort of, so it's a release from those relations and
0: intersections in a way, just for a moment, like you're able to free float. Yeah,
1: and I can really, it's it's really the only space where I don't really care what anyone else thinks, (laughs) because of course in the rest of life, of course I care, of course I, you know, I think, oh my god, I've written this really dark book about dads and all my friends are with dads are reading it and I'm scared they're going to hate me and I mean... I think, you know, I don't worry about it that much, but, you know. Like, no, but I'm just know, a person first, with Yeah, you're a human being, of course. <laughs> but, like, when I'm writing, I'm just, I feel invincible. It's really weird.
0: Yeah. What a great <laughs> thing to do, though. And, you know, I'm, I'm just out there doing it. Yeah,
1: it's a
0: nice thing to be able to do. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love your Thanks. work. Thank you. Thank you. See what I mean? Catherine's fantastic, I sound like a sad, over-enthusiastic fangirl, but there we are, who cares, it's true. Please do check out her work, it's really, really special. And thank you so much for listening, I appreciate it, I look forward to hearing from you, Um, have a great summer, happy writing, happy creating, and I'll be back soon.